بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد So inshallah ta'ala today we start the reading of Al-Waraqat in Usul Al-Fiqh by Imam Al-Haramain Abil Ma'ali Abdul Malik Ibn Abdullah Al-Juwaini Al-Shafi'i Rahimahullah Ta'ala Just to give you a little bit of information about the title and a little bit of information about the author very very quickly I don't want to spend too long on this because we have a lot to get through With regard to the title Al-Waraqat Of course Al-Waraqat it comes from Waraqa Waraqa is a piece of a piece of paper. But generically or generally the plural of waraqa is awraq. And the fact that we say waraqat it indicates that it's only just like a few small pieces of paper. It's not like a big bundle of paper, it's just a few small pieces of paper. And this is one of the reasons why we teach this book because it is very small, it is very easy to understand generally uh, and it summarizes Usul al-Fiqh in just a few short pages. It's well worth memorizing for those who know Arabic and, or who feel able to do so and if you wish you could memorize the poem, there is a poem of Al-Waraqat rather than the actual uh, text itself. As for the author, he is known as Imam al-Haramain, the Imam of the two, of the two harams. His kunya and his nickname is Abu al-Ma'ali, and his name is Abdul Malik ibn Abdullah al-Juwaini al-Shafi'i, and he was Shafi'i in his uh, in his madhab. Those of you who know a little bit about uh, the history of Aqidah will recognize that Al-Juwaini was a major figure in the Ash'ari Aqidah, the Ash'ari belief, which is against the belief of Ahl Sunnah. And Al-Juwaini represents a big Imam for the Ash'aris, yani, in the sense that everyone who came after him from the Ash'aira used his opinions and his writings as an evidence. However, Al-Juwaini repented from this belief at the end of his life, rahimahullah. As did more than one of the Imams. As did, for example, Al-Imam Al-Ghazali, rahimahullah ta'ala, also repented from his belief. As did Abu Hassan Al-Ash'ari, rahimahullah ta'ala, also repented from his belief towards the end of his life. So many of these Imams who are, today we study their books and so on, we have to be a little careful because when they wrote those books, they were Ash'aira. And so you expect them to do what the Ash'aira do. And Al-Juwaini, even in Al-Waraqat, he has moments where he... And we'll talk about Al-Majaz and we'll talk about you know, some other areas where he, he comes into, into the madhab of the Ash'aira. However... There are a couple of things to note. First of all, 
these imams were insha'Allah ta'ala we hope nahsabuhum kathalik they were sincere in their efforts to learn knowledge and pass it on and that's why you will see al-juwaini will go against the ashaira in al-waraqat and you'll see him in more than one issue like the issue of al-kalam of speech he will go against the madhab of the ashaira that's because these imams were not muta'assibin. They were not like extremely, extremely like staunch in the sense that they will never accept the truth. They explained the truth as they thought it was. As the best of, to the best of their ability. And that's why when you see the yani, Ahl Bid'ah of today, you see this ta'assub. Like for example, among the, the people who worship the graves, and they will, doesn't matter if you bring them an ayah or hadith, they will never accept it from you. Whereas these imams were not like that. Yes, they were Ashairah and Al-Juwaini was from the major imams of the Ashairah. But at the end of the day, he was willing to listen to the dalil, to the evidence. And that's why he himself goes against their madhab in more than one place. Of the book, and he goes with the madhab in more than one place of the book. And likewise, you can see the same from many of the imams of uh, of the Ashairah, any of people who were Ashari or so on, that they, as these scholars, any as scholars, were searching for the truth. Al Juwaini reached the truth towards the end of his life, and he repented from being Ashari. He repented from Ilm al Kalam. He warned the people against it. As did Al-Ghazali, rahimahullah ta'ala. As did Abu Hassan himself, Abu Hassan al-Ash'ari. And he, towards the end of his life, repented from what he did, warned the people against it. So ultimately, and we have to recognize that these books are of great benefit. The scholars of Ahl Sunnah have not ceased teaching these books. They have not stopped teaching Al-Waraqat from the time that it was written until today. But we do have to be careful because there will be times when he will go with his, his uh, aqidah, which is not correct. Uh, especially in some of the areas of usul al-fiqh. So we have to be a little bit careful. But the book itself is not full of Ash'ari ideology. The book is not full. The book is a good book on usul al-fiqh, which sometimes just he just goes a little bit, he just dips, dips a little bit into it. And likewise, Al-Ghazali, rahimullah ta'ala, and others. So we say, rahimahullah, and he repented towards the end of his life. Uh, he turned back on those things that he used to propagate and believe. But at the same time, we understand that when studying these books, we are going to come across areas where we have to clarify. And in Al-Waraqat, there is nothing that will, you know, bowl you over and make you say, you know, this is terrible. But there are areas where you have to be careful. You have to be careful about some of the definitions of speech, you have to be a little bit careful about uh, this issue of al-haqiqah wal majaz this issue of whether there exists in the speech of the Arabs words that don't mean what, they, what the apparent meaning of the word is. And is there an example of a word 
in the speech of the Arabs, which doesn't mean what it says it means. Why do the Asha'ira want to do this? So that they can say that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Ar-Rahmanu ala al-Arsh istawa, he did not mean istawa. So they invent this entire framework for Arabic where you say things that you don't mean. And they give examples of that. But inshallah ta'ala, we will cover the refutation of those examples. And we will cover why it is that those examples are not valid. They give many examples in the Quran where Allah Azza wa Jal, according to them, say, uh, say something with a, yani, a word or a speech which isn't the intended meaning. And inshallah ta'ala, we're going to cover the refutation of that particular issue and prove how it is that this is an invalid principle to start with and why it has to be invalid with regard to the Quran and why it's most likely to also be invalid in the whole speech of the Arabs from beginning to end. Although some of Ahlul Sunnah said it exists in the speech of the Arabs, but it doesn't exist in the Quran. We'll come to that inshallah ta'ala. So we'll, there'll be times when you have to kind of be a little bit careful. But in general, the book is an excellent book. It's an excellent summary. And our scholars and our teachers of Aqeedah have not ceased to teach this book in their classes and to recommend us to, to, to teach it and to recommend us to learn from it. And so inshallah ta'ala, that is what we are going to do. Al-Juwaini died 478 yeah, 478 after the Hijrah. And from this, and is a side point on the topic while we're on the topic of Aqeedah. All of these so-called Imams of Aqeedah from the Asha'ira are all well after the, the Qurun al-Mufaddala. They're all well after the age where of the Prophet ﷺ and his companions and his, you know, the tabi'een and those who followed them. And that in itself should give you confidence. Because if you ask the source of your belief, the source of your belief are people from the time of the Prophet ﷺ and the time of the tabi'een and the time of those who came after them. And as for these Ash'aris, None of them came from that generation at all. All of them came from the later uh, generations. After the Prophet ﷺ said, the best of the generations is my generation, then those who follow them and those who follow them. And this is your answer to the person who says, don't you see that all of the scholars of Islam were Ash'ari? That's what they say. And then they start quoting Al-Juwaini, Al-Ghazali, Al-Nawawi, Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar. All of the scholars of Islam. There were no scholars of Islam upon the Sunnah. Allah, even if we accept what they say, we just ask them, okay, the first 150 years after the Hijrah, where were your scholars then? No answer. Because they didn't exist. Because the people in that time were upon the belief of Ahlul Sunnah. And so even if everyone after them was Ashari, which is not the truth and not the case, but even if we submit to their statement that every single scholar after that was Ashari, it still proves the, proves the falsehood of their belief. Because quite simply, where was that belief in the time of the Prophet 
Where was that belief in the time of Abu Bakr? Where was that belief in the time of Umar? Where was that belief in the time of Uthman? Where was that belief in the time of Ali? Where was that belief in the time of Al-Hasan al-Basri and Muhammad ibn Sirin? Where was that belief in the time of Imam al-Zuhri? Where was that belief? And so on and so on and so on. And everyone was upon misguidance until Abu al-Hasan al-Ash'ari was born. So this is a very foolish thing they say, but it's very common you hear. They will say our belief must be right because every scholar was upon our belief. Whereas the reality is none of the scholars of the early generations were upon their belief. Neither were the four Imams. You only have to read what Abu Hanifa said about Ilm al-Kalam. What Al-Imam Shafi'i said about Ilm al-Kalam. These are Imam Shafi'iyah. Al-Imam Shafi'i, as I recall, the punishment for engaging in Ilm al-Kalam, upon which the Ash'ari belief is based, was to put this person, to whip the person in public and put him on a donkey and parade him through the streets. And that was the punishment according to Al-Imam al-Shafi'i. And let the person who is walking with him cry out, this is the punishment of the one who engages himself in Ilm al-Kalam. That was the madhab of Al-Imam al-Shafi'i. So these beliefs that came, these false beliefs and this false aqidah that came, don't let anybody tell you that this was the, all of the scholars of Islam were upon this belief. Yes, there was a time when it was the predominant belief in the ummah. No doubt about that. But being the predominant belief doesn't make it right. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us if you follow most of the people on the earth, they will misguide you from the path of Allah. And the Prophet told us, There will never cease to be a group of my ummah clearly upon the truth. But from this we understand, just so we give this as a reply, I need that those people who will say all of the scholars of Islam are like this. And they don't cease, yani. every madhab says this. Yani. All of the scholars of Islam were this. All of the scholars of Islam were this. Then we say to them, we don't accept, having said that, having given them that argument that none of the scholars before the, in the first you know, 150 years, 200 years, whatever, were upon this belief. We then say to them, we also don't accept your argument from two other angles. Number one, we don't accept that there were not scholars upon the sunnah in those times. Because the Prophet ﷺ told us there will always remain a group of my ummah upon the truth. So there will always remain scholars who are upon the right belief. And secondly, we don't accept that those scholars that you mention, that all of them were Ash'ari, especially an Nawawi and Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar. To be honest, uh, claiming that Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar was Ash'ari is extremely, extremely uh, factually incorrect. What is factually correct is to say that he fell into some of the things that the Ash'aris fell into in certain places. But he refuted them vociferously in other places. And in some places, Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar refutes them and wipes the floor with them. And in other places, he falls into what they fell into. But the essence of the Ash'ari belief is preferring intellect over revelation. That is the essence of it. That is the core of this belief. And the thing that everything in Ash'ari Aqeedah comes back to, it is 
their belief that al-aql fawq al-naql that the intellect is superior to revelation that is their that is what everything they believe comes back to now if we apply that as a standard for al-hafidh ibn hajar and al-nawawi we see that neither of those two were upon that belief both al-nawawi and al-hafidh ibn hajar clearly state that revelation is superior to the intellect that revelation is superior to intellect therefore if they both state that revelation is superior to intellect how can you label them as being ash'ari when they don't believe in the most fundamental thing that the ash'ari believe in which is that intellect is superior to revelation what you can say is that both of them fell into some of the ash'ari beliefs with regard to the names and attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar less so than Al-Imam Al-Nawawi rahimahumullah. And Al-Nawawi was worse in that regard than Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar. But they fell into some of what they fell into. But as for labeling them like this, this is like not differentiating between the Shi'i and between the one about whom it is said, Fihi tashayyu'a. And there is one who it is said about him, he is Shi'i. And he has embraced the principles of Shi'ism. And there is one about whom it is said, Fihi tashayyu'i. He has elements of Shi'i belief. For example, it is said about Al-Imam al-Nasai rahimahullah ta'ala, Fihi tashayyu'i. He had elements of Shi'i belief. What do they mean by that? A preference for Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhu over Uthman, despite, despite affirming the virtue of Uthman and his validity as Khalifa, yani saying Uthman was a valid Khalifa and he was a virtuous person, but I believe that Ali would have been better. This is Tashayyur, this is an element of Shi'ism. However, it's not Shi'i belief. The person who says this is not Shi'i, they are not Shi'i. You cannot say they are Shi'i because they say that. Ali would have been better as a Khalifa than Uthman. They have an element of Tashayyur. They have an element of Shi'ism. But it's not the complete picture and it's not fair to label them with that complete picture. Many people say that Al-Imam al-Nasai was unfairly labeled with that because of an incident that happened with the Emir of Palestine where he... Uh, where he wrote a book about the virtue of Ali and refused to write anything about the virtue of Muawiyah. So it was said about him, Fihi and he has some elements of Shi'ism, but that's probably not really true. But the point is that there is a difference between someone who has a sprinkling of a belief and someone who is a full card-carrying member of that belief. So it's not valid to say that Al-Imam Al-Nawawi and Al-Imam Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar were Ash'arah. Rather we say that they had elements of Ash'ari belief. And elements where they refuted it. Elements where they agreed and elements where they refused. And the biggest element, the concept that intellect is superior to the Qur'an and the Sunnah, they were absolutely free from. As for Al-Juwaini, Al-Juwaini was one of the Imams of the Ash'arah and he was Ash'ari through and through until the end of his life where he, uh, he repented from that. So inshallah that is worthwhile knowing. And inshallah ta'ala we will begin 
the book. After Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, Al Juwaini Rahimullah Ta'ala, he says, in a section which he didn't entitle, but it is, in, it is usually given the title, Ma'na Usul al Fiqh, the meaning of Usul al Fiqh. We've covered this before, so we're just going to run over it very quickly. These few pieces of paper, Hadihi Warakat, these are a few pieces of paper, like a small reminder, a small note, a small set of notes, which cover various topics, cover various fusul, various chapters. Min usul al fiqh. And he says that you need to be aware, and I'm not going to translate directly, but I'm just, al waraqat is available in English anyways, but I'm not going to translate directly, I'm just going to kind of give you the, the summary. That usul al fiqh is made up of two separate words. Usul and fiqh. And we said this last time. He says, So al-asl, ma bunya alayhi ghayruh. The meaning of al-asl, which the word usul comes from, is that which something else is built upon. A foundation, a fundamental principle. Something which something else is built upon. And he says al-fara'. Al-fara' is the opposite of al-asl. So we have al-asl and we have al-fara'. Uh, if you wanted an English word for al-asl and al-asl and al-fara', we would probably say root and branch. Or, and yeah, root and branch is a good word. Al-asl wal-fara'. Al-asl is the root, the fundamental, the foundation. And al-fara' is the branch, the, the bit that gets built on top. And he said, al-fara'u ma yubna alayhi ghayruh. What is something else? What is built over something else? And then he goes on to say, Al-Fiqh. Al-Fiqh. He defines yani, Al-Fiqh as Ma'rifatul Ahkam al-Shari'iyya Al-Lati Tariquha al-Ijtihad Knowing Islamic rulings For which the means of knowing them is al-ijtihad. So al-Juwaini, rahimahullah, he defines al-fiqh as knowing Islamic rulings for which the means to know them is ijtihad. Briefly, we said fiqh in, uh, uh, linguistically is uh, understanding. Bear in mind that understanding is more specific than knowledge. Because you may have knowledge of something, but not understand it. You may have knowledge of something, but you don't understand it. For example, you may have memorized something, but you don't understand what you have memorized. Or you may have knowledge of something in the in the dunya, but you don't understand it properly. So fiqh is more specific than al-ilm. Ilm or knowledge is quite generic and fiqh is more sort of specific. Fiqh is more like 
understanding the knowledge that you have. And we said from this is the statement of the Prophet Whoever Allah wants good for, he gives him fiqh of the religion. He gives him understanding of the religion. He understands Islam. He understands the deen. As for the technical definition of fiqh, the Islamic definition of fiqh, Al-Juwaini defines it as knowing Islamic rulings. And he knowing what is halal, knowing what is haram, knowing what is recommended and what is disliked, knowing what is allowed and what is not allowed. And this is a means to achieve Jannah. Because there is no means to achieve taqwa except with this. How can you be a person who has taqwa of Allah if you do not know what it is that you are avoiding and what it is you are supposed to be doing? You don't know which food is halal and which food is haram. You don't know which drink is halal and which drink is haram. You don't know which relationship is halal and which relationship is haram. So how will you be able after that to be from the muttaqin, to be from the people who have taqwa? You cannot be from the people of taqwa unless you know the halal and the haram and what is recommended and what is disliked. And what is allowed? And so fiqh is knowing Islamic rulings. Knowing what is halal, knowing what is haram, knowing what is obligatory, what is recommended, what is disliked, what is a condition for this to be accepted, what is, uh, and what prevents something from being accepted. These are all part of knowing the, the rulings, shari rulings. For which the means of knowing them is ijtihad. The meaning of ijtihad we will come to later on the topic of al-mujtahid. But uh, ijtihad here is the ability to extract rulings from the texts. Ijtihad is the ability to extract rulings from their sources the ability to extract rulings from their sources and that is why you have a mujtahid and you have a muqallid the mujtahid is the person who is able to extract rulings from their sources and the muqallid is the one who is not able to extract rulings from their sources and therefore requires to take those rulings from someone who is able to extract them from their sources. And we'll cover this later on. But Al-Juwaini is linking fiqh to Al-Ijtihad in the sense that the means by which we know fiqh, how do we know what is halal and what is haram? Because there are people who go to the sources, they go to the Qur'an and the Sunnah, and they extract from that Qur'an and Sunnah what is halal and what is haram. And those people are the scholars of Islam. And to be more specific, the mujtahidun, the people who are the people of ijtihad, they go to the Qur'an and they go to the sunnah and they extract the halal and the haram. Uh, and the halal and haram that they extract, this is what we term to be fiqh. Knowing this halal and haram, this is what we term to be fiqh. It's not what we term to be usul al-fiqh. 
Usul al-fiqh is the process by which those halal haram are extracted. The means, the tools, the kit that you take with you to, to extract the halal and the haram from the Quran and the Sunnah. But the actual extraction and saying, okay, it is haram to commit zina and it is halal or it is mandub, it is recommended to get married. So this process of actually doing it, we call this fiqh. This comes under the category of fiqh. What is halal and what is haram? This is the category of, of fiqh. But the, the method and the tools you use to take that out, those tools can be used on any ayah, on any hadith, on any, in any mas'ala, in any issue. Marriage, buying, selling, halal, haram. And that is why usul al-fiqh is general and fiqh is specific. Because usul al-fiqh deals with the tools you can use for any ayah and any hadith. And it deals with the method of extraction which you use for any ayah or any hadith. Or any matter of consensus. It's not specific to a certain issue. And the tools are not like this tool is for ayah number 123 from Surah Al-Baqarah. No, these tools are generic for all of the ayat and all of the ahadith and all of the Islamic sources and evidences. As for fiqh, no. Fiqh is the specific things that you extract. Al-adillatu tafsiliyya, ayah number 101 from this surah benefits us this ruling in this particular issue. That is fiqh. As for usul al-fiqh, usul al-fiqh is how do you go to any ayah in the Qur'an and extract from it the wajib and the mandub and the mubah and the makruh and the haram. I mean, how do you extract those things from the sources? So usul al-fiqh is the supporting science upon which fiqh is built. Fiqh is one of the most fundamental Islamic sciences because one of our fundamental, if you like, jobs in Islam is to know the halal and the haram. Therefore, fiqh is a major and in knowing what is right and what is wrong and acting upon it is one of the major uh, jobs and responsibilities that we have. As for usul al-fiqh, it is a supporting science. It's the ladder with which we ascend to be able to apply those rules to al-fiqh. And as we said yes, uh, last week, it is not specific to fiqh either, to be honest. Usul al-fiqh is a science which is called usul al-fiqh because primarily it is used in fiqh. Any primarily it is used in fiqh. However, usul al-fiqh is also used in aqidah. Because aqidah at the end of the day is going to the sources that deal with the topic of belief and extracting what you have to believe and what you must not believe and what you should believe and so on. Therefore, you cannot extract aqidah from the Qur'an and the Sunnah without usul al-fiqh. Otherwise, how will you know what it is you are supposed to believe 
and what it is that you're not allowed to believe. However, it's called usul al-fiqh and not usul al-aqidah because its primary usage is in fiqh. And so this is what we call any, uh, for example, isti'mal al Al-Ghalib, uh, it's, it's what you mostly use it for. Because you mostly use it for fiqh, so it's called usul al-fiqh. Or it's called usul al-fiqh because al-fiqh is wider than just the halal and the haram. Al-fiqh also includes understanding of the religion, understanding of our belief, understanding of the importance of following the sunnah and so on. All of these are a part of fiqh in a general sense. So you can either say usul al-fiqh is the foundation upon which all understanding is based. Or you can say that usul al-fiqh is the foundation of fiqh and that's where it's mostly used. However, it's also used in other fields as well. And there is an overlap, as we said, between usul al-fiqh and usul al-hadith. Or what is often called mustalah al-hadith, the science of hadith. Al-Juwani rahimullah ta'ala then goes on to talk about Al-Ahkam al-Shari'iyya Islamic rulings So is he going to tell you the ruling of zakah? Is he going to tell you who zakat al-fitr is obligatory for? No, he's not going to tell you that Because that belongs in the books of fiqh Not in the books of usul He's going to categorize all of the rulings of Islam Into seven categories The first is Al-Wajib The first is Al-Wajib What is Wajib? What is Wajib? Wajib is that which you are rewarded for doing and punished for leaving. That which you are rewarded for doing and punished for leaving. There are a couple of footnotes we need to make to that. Because that is true in a general sense, but it's also not always true. Especially with regard to being punished for leaving it. This is, I mean, this is the general definition that most of the scholars give. You're rewarded for doing it and punished for leaving it. But... There are some elements to note. With regard to reward, you are rewarded for doing it on the condition that you do it in the way that you have been required to do it 
with the correct intention and so on yani because every for every deed to be accepted has two conditions it has to be for the sake of Allah and it has to be in accordance with the sunnah of the messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam you can say that that is included in the definition because having sincerity for Allah azza wa jal is in itself wajib and likewise following the sunnah you're not rewarded for not following the sunnah therefore and it's quite possible to argue that both of those points come underneath the word what you are rewarded for doing but just so we are clear let's give an example if a non-muslim comes into the masjid now and prays a duha will it be accepted from them no it will not be accepted from them because they are missing a fundamental condition of acceptance which is Islam and all of the scholars agree that the salah is not accepted from someone who is not a Muslim if a non-Muslim fasts the month of Ramadan as many do here in Dubai a non-Muslim fasts the month of Ramadan it's not accepted from them because at the end of the day they are not they are missing one of the conditions of acceptance if someone comes in to pray a duha and he prays it with the intention of showing off and being praised then it's not accepted from him because he is missing the condition of sincerity for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala if someone comes in and prays Salatul Asr now at this time it's not accepted from them because they are praying it before its proper time but that being aside that is understood I mean that is everyone understands that and that will come later in the book also that we will cover these uh, conditions where is more important to, to believe a footnote is that which you are punished for not doing there are several cases where you are not punished. In fact, it would be better if they said, what is deserving of punishment if you leave it? That would be a better definition than saying what you are punished for leaving. What is deserving of punishment if you leave it? Because leaving the wajib is deserving of punishment this is what Ahl Sunnah agreed upon that leaving the wajib is deserving of punishment if you don't pray dhuhr you are deserving of punishment will you be punished that depends first of all if you make tawbah man taba taballahu alayhi Whoever makes tawbah, Allah will accept his tawbah. That's the first thing. The second thing, the Prophet ﷺ said that my ummah has been relieved from ignorance and forgetting and what they are forced to do. So somebody forces you to drink alcohol okay, at gunpoint. They put a gun to your head and they force you to drink alcohol. So this is not punishable in Islam. 
or you forgot to pray Fajr. You didn't remember at all. Without any negligence on your part, you went to bed early, you set your alarm, but you just forgot that you didn't pray Fajr. And now when we are talking, about, oh, subhanAllah, I didn't pray Fajr this morning. So this person will not be punished because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not punish the one who forgets. Likewise, the one who left a wajib because he didn't know that it was wajib. And he's not negligent, be careful, because there are some things you didn't know and you are punished for because negligence is it's negligent not to know it. And you are blameworthy not to know it. But there are some things that people don't know about. They are wajib, but the person doesn't know that they had, didn't know that they had to do it. So again, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, out of his mercy and his generosity, has relieved this ummah from ignorance and forgetfulness and what they are forced to do. So we have a tawbah as an exception. And we have some kinds of ignorance, not all kinds of ignorance, but some kinds of ignorance. Because there are some things you cannot be ignorant about. Someone says, I was praying to an idol because I didn't know that in Islam you're not allowed to pray to an idol. This is not an acceptable form of ignorance. But there are other forms of ignorance which are more. I and mean, someone was rushing in their prayer because they didn't know that you have to stay still in each place. This is more acceptable I mean, in the sense that you explain to them and you don't ask them to repeat their prayer. And you just explain to them that you have to. You have to be more slow in each position. You be, behave more slowly in each position of the prayer. As we said, ignorance, forgetfulness, some types of ignorance and forgetfulness and what you are forced, compelled to do. Be careful what you are forced to do also has rules and regulations. I mean, you cannot just say like, or the guy said, look, please don't pray. So then I was forced not to pray. And you have to be in fear of your life. You have to be in fear that, you know, that something very serious is going to happen to you. A serious, like serious injury or serious harm cannot be somebody who is just like somebody said to him don't pray otherwise I'll get really angry with you and then you didn't pray but in general we understood these three categories the last one that we have to make is the exception is the one who dies having abandoned a wajib and has not made tawbah so the person is, is let's say for example let's say an abandoning a wajib yani has been bad to his parents. He has abandoned being good to his parents. He's left being good to his parents. And he has not repented for that. And he dies without having repented from that. And being bad to your parents is a major sin. It's not a small sin. He is within the Mashia of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, within the will of Allah. If Allah wills, he will forgive him. And if Allah wills, he will punish him. So a person may die drinking alcohol and Allah may forgive them. This is something a lot of people don't understand. And sadly, a lot of people would say, for example, this person is kafir because he died drinking alcohol and he did not repent from it. No, it's not the case. A person who dies with a major sin, if Allah wills, he will punish him. And if Allah wills, he will forgive him. 
And that is why it is better to say that the wajib is that which you are rewarded for doing and you are deserving of punishment if you leave it. You are deserving of punishment. Does that mean you will definitely be punished? No. That just means that you are deserving of punishment. The person who dies committing zina, are they deserving of punishment? Yes. They deserve to be punished. Will they be punished? That is in the hands of Allah. If Allah wills, He will punish them. And if Allah wills, He will overlook. But some people must be punished. Why do we say some people must be punished? Because Allah said, وَمَنْ أَصْدَقُ مِنَ اللَّهِ قِيلًا Who is more truthful than Allah in speech? And Allah promised punishment for those who do these sins. Therefore, if Allah was to forgive the entire world for doing them, what would happen? His speech would be untruthful. And if Allah was to forgive all of mankind for it, then his speech would be untruthful. And therefore we say, the punishment must happen to at least some people. Otherwise, the speech of Allah would not be truthful. However, Allah overlooks however many He wishes to overlook and punishes however many He wishes to punish. But the punishment must happen to at least some people. So when we kind of clean that definition up a bit, then a wajib is that which you are rewarded for doing and are deserving of punishment for leaving. Can we give an example of the wajib? Let's give an example of the five daily prayers for the one whom the conditions of praying apply to them. We have to put that disclaimer because what if we say the five daily prayers and a woman says, I'm on my menses. Am I deserving of punishment for not praying? We say, no, you're not deserving of punishment for not praying. In fact, if you prayed, you would be deserving of punishment. So the five daily prayers for the one who is required to pray them. Meaning, the Muslim who is, has reached the age of puberty and is, has full possession of their intellect and is free of any reason why they are not required to pray. Such as menses and postnatal bleeding and other things. So an example of al-wajib, the five daily prayers for the person who is required to pray them. The second category is al-mandub. Al-mandub. Some people call it al-mustahab. The proper word we use in usul al-fiqh is al-mandub. That's the word we use in usul al-fiqh, al-mandub. And that is that which is rewarded for doing and there is no punishment for the one who leaves it. So you are rewarded for doing it but there is no punishment if you leave it. Can we give an example of that? Let's stick on the theme of the prayer and say 
two raka'ah after Salat al-Zuhr. Two raka'ah after Faridat al-Zuhr, after the obligatory prayer of Zuhr. This two raka'ah, if you pray it, are you rewarded? Yes, if you pray it in the right way, with the right intention, according to the sunnah, then you are rewarded for praying it. Are you punished if you leave it? No, there is no punishment for leaving it. Therefore, it comes under the category of al-mandub, i.e. al-mustahab, that which is recommended. So the wajib in English we would say the obligatory, and the mandub we would say is the recommended. It's also worth noting, and just while we're on this topic, that until now we haven't entered into the main topic of usul al-fiqh. This is still the introduction because usul al-fiqh itself doesn't deal with these categories. But these categories are kind of like telling someone before they go into the mine and start digging, look, this is gold and this is tin and this is copper and you should recognize what each of these things are. We then come to al-mubah. Al-mubah is that which there is no reward for doing and no punishment for leaving. There is no reward for doing and there is no punishment for leaving. For example, right now, I'm sitting on this chair. What is the ruling of me sitting on this chair as opposed to standing or sitting on the floor? It is mubah. There is no reward for me sitting on a chair versus sitting on the floor or standing up. And there is no punishment for me sitting on the chair versus sitting on the floor or standing up. The next category, Al-Mahdhur. And Al-Mahdhur is often called Al-Haram. I mean, some of the scholars, they will, they will say it is al-wajib wal-mandub wal-mubah wal-haram. Wal-mahdhur. And al-mahdhur is al-haram. The two are the same. Al-mahdhur, that which you are rewarded for leaving and punished for doing. Again, punished for doing, put in brackets, deserving of punishment for doing. Because actually you may not be punished for doing the haram. You may not be punished for doing the haram, depending on whether Allah overlooks or not, whether you have made tawbah or not, whether you forgot or not, whether you knew or not, whether you were compelled or not. But the basic concept of the haram, when you leave it, you get a reward. And when you do it, you put yourself in danger of punishment. We give an example of that, drinking alcohol. If a person drinks alcohol, they are at risk of punishment. And if they don't drink alcohol consciously, then they are rewarded. If they don't drink alcohol because they just didn't remember to drink it, then they are not rewarded for that. 
But if they consciously choose not to drink alcohol because they know that Allah made it haram, then they are rewarded for not drinking alcohol. Providing it is done sincerely for the sake of Allah. And again, any the haram has to be avoided in accordance with the sunnah. So again, and you have to, like these are general definitions, but there are some exceptions, there are some rules and regulations. Like we said, a person may avoid the haram because he just doesn't remember to do it. And that person is not rewarded. Or he doesn't get time to do it. It's like I wanted to drink alcohol, but when I came back from work, it was so late, I just went to sleep. This person is not rewarded for leaving, drinking alcohol. But if he has an intention that this is for the sake of Allah, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prohibited me from drinking this alcohol and therefore I'm not going to drink alcohol, then this person is rewarded for not drinking alcohol. And if he drinks it, he is in danger of or under threat of punishment and deserving of punishment. And al-makruh. Al-makruh. Al-makruh is that which you are rewarded for leaving and there is no punishment if you do it. For example, drinking, standing up. If you take a glass of water and you consciously, again, sit down because you know that that is the sunnah, then you are rewarded for doing that. But if you drink standing up, there is no sin on you for drinking standing up. There is no sin. But if you don't do it, then you get rewarded. Again, you have to be conscious of that and you have to be sincere for the sake of Allah when doing that. But that's an example. Drinking water, standing up. If you leave it, you get rewarded. And if you do it, you don't get any punishment. That doesn't mean that it's good for you. You may lose some of the benefits because the makruh is only makruh because it is harmful. Some of the scholars said the difference between the haram and the makruh is the haram is harmful always. And the makruh is harmful if you do it frequently. For example, drinking water standing up. Ibn al-Qayyim said, when you drink water standing up, very little of that water is absorbed by the body. And it goes straight in and, and straight out. Imagine if you drank standing up every time. You would end up getting some harm. You would become dehydrated. You would become, and you, like, you might get a weak bladder. If you did it every time. But if you did it from time to time, it would not harm you anything. And this is really the, the key to the makruh. It is something which the occasional doing of it doesn't hurt you. 
But when you do it regularly, yes, you can have some harm that comes about. However, even if you do it regularly, there is no sin. Even if I drink water standing up every time, there is no sin on me. Even if I never ever sit down in my life to drink water, there is no sin on me. But yes, I could come to a harm. Because at the end of the day, the makruh is there for a reason. It's not there like, it's not imaginary. It's there for some real reason. And that real reason is that if it is done frequently and regularly, it is harmful. And I also want to make clear about the makruh, that the makruh has to have a dalil for it as well. And you can't just, you can't just uh, invent something as being makruh. Like some people, they have this idea, look, the wajib and the haram, they have to have a dalil. But the makruh is whatever like people don't like. And you know, makruh is what people don't like, but, but it's still halal in Islam. That's not the case. For something to be makruh, you have to have an evidence for it to be makruh. And there are some issues that are modern issues and, and things that people bring up and they will say, this is makruh. Say, Bring your proof if you are truthful. You cannot just say something is makruh. Al-asl, al-jawaz. The basic principle of everything is that it's permissible in the dunya. And the basic principle in the deen is what? That it's haram. The basic principle that we start out for in the religion is that everything is haram. Everything in Islam is haram except what there is a specific proof that it's not haram. That's in the religion, worship. As for the dunya, the opposite is true. Al-asl, al-ibaha. The basic principle is that everything in the dunya is halal. Someone says, what is your evidence that mango juice is halal? Did the Prophet ﷺ eat mangoes? No. Did the Sahaba eat mangoes? Not that we know of. Khalas, haram. No, because in the dunya, the basic principle is everything is halal unless you have a specific evidence otherwise. And therefore, you cannot say something is makruh because you happen to dislike it. Rather, to say something is makruh, you have to have an evidence for it, that it is makruh. Otherwise, we go back to the basic principle, which is that everything in the religion is haram, except what there is an evidence for, and everything in the dunya or in the worldly life, and everything outside of worship is halal, except what there is an evidence for. And likewise, another area people get confused about the makruh and the haram is that people think that if something isn't specifically mentioned in the Qur'an and the Sunnah, it cannot be haram. For example, smoking. They say smoking is not mentioned in the Qur'an and the Sunnah specifically. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't say, وَحَرَّمْنَا عَلَيْكُمُ التَّدْخِينَ We have made smoking haram for you. 
So people say, okay, if it's not mentioned in the Quran and the Sunnah, it can only be makruh. Yani that can be the maximum level. That is not true. None of the usuliyun said this. Rather, there are things which are unanimously haram. By ijma' they are haram. Which are not mentioned in the Quran and the Sunnah. And it's enough that the Quran and the Sunnah give us principles of what is haram. So killing yourself is haram. And wasting your money is haram. And harming other people is haram. And those have evidences for them in the Quran and the Sunnah. Therefore, if something comes along which involves killing yourself and wasting your money and harming other people, how do you say it's makruh? It cannot be makruh. It has to be haram because the sharia and the shari'ah, Azza wa Jal, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the legislator, made things which harm other people and kill yourself and waste your money to be haram. In the Quran and the Prophet ﷺ made them haram in the sunnah. So it's not the case like some people have the idea if the word is mentioned specifically, it's haram. And otherwise it's makruh. No, again, there are rules and regulations about what is haram and what is makruh. And that is the purpose of usul al-fiqh. That you learn what is or how you know that something is haram and how you know that something is any makruh and so on. Al-Juwayni rahimahullah mentions two more. Al-Sahih and Al-Batil. Al-Sahih and Al-Batil. Al-Sahih is that which is valid. We'll just go through the English names of the others. We said Al-Wajib is the obligatory. Al-Mandub is recommended. Al-Mubah is permissible. Al-Mahdur is forbidden. And Al-Makruh is disliked. Al-Sahih is that which is valid. And Al-Batil is that which is invalid. That is the meaning here at least. To give a definition of a sahih, try and give you a simple definition of a sahih, that which is valid. Uh, we could say something like that for which the effect of the ruling comes into play or is. Uh, that for which the effect of the ruling is uh, applied. So let's explain that with an example. Marriage. Marriage. Some, a marriage contract is sahih when the outcome of that contract is that the couple are married. A marriage contract is sahih, is valid, when the outcome of that contract is that the couple are married. And a marriage is batil, is invalid, when the outcome of that contract is that the couple are not married. For example, two people get married, 
they have Shahide Adal, two witnesses. They have the Wali, the girl's guardian. There is Al-Ijab Wal-Qabul. The guardian says, I offer you my daughter in marriage. And the groom says, I accept. The husband and the wife are known. It's not like you're married to one of those girls over there. And you're like, it's a specific woman. And she's known by her name, by her, and her description. And so he's not confused about who he's marrying. The mahar is stipulated. And so on and so forth. What is the outcome of that contract? The outcome is that they become husband and wife. And intimacy becomes permissible for them. And the woman inherits from him if he dies. And all of the other stuff that happens when people are married. Right? Why did those things apply? They applied because the nikah was sahih. It was valid. Now we have a boy and a girl run away together. And they go to their friend's house and their friend says, Okay, do you accept each other as husband and wife? The guy says yes. The girl says yes. What is the outcome of that? Are they married? No, they are not married. Is it halal for them to be intimate with one another? No. If the man dies, will the woman inherit from him? No. If the woman dies, will the man inherit from him? No. Will the children take the name of the father? No. Because this is nikahun batil. This is an invalid nikah. Therefore, the effects of that nikah are not applied. There is no application or the outcome of that is not applied. I and mean, there is no outcome of it. We could give the example of buying and selling. I sell you something that I own. You are clear about what I'm selling to you. You're clear about the price. We agree upon it. You give me the money. I give you the possession of the item. You leave the majlis, I leave the majlis. What is the outcome of this? The outcome of this is a transfer of ownership. Ownership now transferred from me to you. Why did ownership transfer from me to you? Because it was bay'un sahih. It was an act of tra a transaction which was valid. Okay, I sold you something I don't own. I will sell you an apartment in the Burj Khalifa. But I don't own an apartment in the Burj Khalifa. But I sold it to you. What is the outcome? Did you now, are you now the proud new owner of an apartment in the Burj Khalifa? No. The outcome is nothing. Except and you got like fleeced and you got like tricked. But the outcome is, is nothing. There is no outcome. There is no transfer of ownership. The outcome is not applied. The ruling is not applied. Because I sold you what I didn't own. And selling something that you don't own renders the contract batil. It becomes invalid. So we understand that the things that we do, whether they are transactions or whether they are acts of ibadat or mu'amalat, even the salah, we can give an example. You prayed the salah without tahara and without a valid excuse for missing tahara. What's the ruling of your salah? Salah is 
Batila. Okay, what is the effect of that? The effect of that is that you have to repeat the salah. You are no longer said to have prayed. It's not written in your account that you prayed. Because you prayed without tahara and without an excuse for missing it. Someone may pray without tahara, but with an excuse. Like the one who is suffering from istihada, regular bleeding. The woman who is suffering from regular bleeding. She makes wudu before the salah and she goes to the salah and the blood comes while she is praying. So she's praying without tahara, but her salah is sahiha. It's valid. Because she has an excuse. But someone prays without tahara, without purification, and without an excuse for not having purification. What is the ruling of their salah? It's batila. So they have to do qada, they have to make up their salah. It's not written that they prayed. They are not allowed to just let it go. The outcome of the salah is not applied. You pray your prayer properly and with all of its conditions, what is the outcome? The outcome is there is no qada, there is no making up the prayer. And the prayer is written for you as you having prayed it. So this prayer is sahiha, it's valid. And so on. So whether in ibadat or mu'amalat, there are things which make something valid or invalid. When something is valid, how do you define what is valid? You say oh, it's conditional. No, simply what is valid is when the outcome of that action is applied, is effective. And we give effect to the outcome. We give effect to the outcome. When something is invalid is when we do not give effect to the outcome. So we do not consider the marriage took place. We do not consider the prayer was prayed. We do not consider the transaction, the ownership changed. So the outcome was not applied, was no longer valid. So that is al-sahih and al-batil. That which is valid and that which is invalid. this point if I can figure out how to do this At this point, it's worth noting that in many books of Usul al-Fiqh, and in fact the standard with regard to Usul al-Fiqh, is to split these rulings up with the first five in their own category and the last two in their own category with other things, which Al-Juwaini Rahimahullah Ta'ala didn't mention. So generally, 
we break up the ahkam, the rulings, into two categories. Al-ahkam al-taklifiyya and al-ahkam al-wadiyya. Al-ahkam al-taklifiyya are those things which are taklif, yani they are like obligatory, haram, recommended, disliked, permissible. The first five. Those are relating to the ruling of the action. And then generally the usuliyun divide the second half or they, they have the second half which are al-ahkam al-wadiyya. And these don't relate to a like a, a ruling like it being obligatory for you or haram for you. But they are more, if you like, supporting rulings. I just wanted to go over them because not all of them are not all of them are uh, are clear. What is the difference between the rulings which are taklifiyya and the rulings which are wadiyya? And I don't know, I, I've never found a good uh, English term for that. You can look in the translation uh, if you find one. And it's not, there's not a great, I mean, it's not like, however you explain, you can find a term for it, but they don't, like it's easier to explain what the difference is. The rulings which relate to taklif, they are rulings which relate to your actions and things that you are able to do. For example, whether you do something or not, whether you are rewarded or not, whether you leave something or not, whether you are rewarded or not for leaving something or doing something. That relates to what you do and what you are able to do. As for al-hukm al-wadi'i, then most of the time it isn't related to what you are able to do. And it's not related to your like specific actions. It's more of a general uh, description which isn't down to whether you'd left it or didn't leave it, I mean, generally. Otherwise, the issue gets long and there's a long discussion about what the difference is between the two. But you know, to, to be honest, the easiest way to understand it is just to remember that haram and wajib and whatever, they are taklifi. They are related to a taklif, related to what you are commanded to do. And the others, which we're going to cover now, are related to Al-Wada, yani Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put them in place as being like this. 
يعني الله سبحانه وتعالى revealed that certain يعني or put in place that certain things will be conditions and certain things will be impediments as it will become clear as we go through okay so what are the rest of al-ahkam al-wadhiyah what are the rest of the these rulings which are not related to what we do and what we know and what we're able what are the rest of them apart from al-sahih and al-batil also as well as al-batil and often people use uh, they use uh, instead of sahih and batil they talk about any validity and al-fasad corruption something being invalid validity and invalidity anyways the first one is a sabab in the Arabic language a sabab is something which leads you a sabab is a a cause in English we would say a cause a sabab is something which leads you to your intended goal in English we would call it a cause a cause it leads you to your intended goal For this reason, in the Quran, when the story of Dil Qarnayn comes, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Then he followed a sabab. What is a sabab here in this ayah? A road. A sabab in this ayah is a road. Why is a road called a sabab? Why is a road called a cause? Because it causes you to reach your destination. It causes you to be able to reach your destination. And therefore, the Arabs call a tariq a sabab. They call a road a cause. Because it causes you to reach your destination. And like in the story of Dil Qarnayn, then he followed a sabab, i.e., he followed a road. He followed a way. Which led him to his goal. The easiest definition of a sabab in usul al fiqh, there are lots, but the easiest one I can give you. Is what we would say in Arabic, and let's see if we can get this right in English. Let's see if I can get this right in English, because this is like a tongue twister. It's easy in Arabic, but it's a little bit of a tongue twister in English. That if it is present, then the 
ruling is present and if it is absent then the ruling is absent if it is present then the ruling is present and if it is absent then the ruling is absent let's give some examples The time for prayer. If it's not time for dhuhr, is the ruling for dhuhr present? Like now, right now, is it wajib for me to pray dhuhr? Why are you saying to me it's not wajib to pray dhuhr? Dhuhr is wajib. We just covered this in the, in the category of wujub. We said the salawatul khams. The five daily prayers for the one who prays them, dhuhr is wajib. So why is dhuhr not wajib for me now? Because the time for dhuhr has not come. In other words, dhuhr does not become wajib until the time for dhuhr is present. And when the time for dhuhr is present, then the, the ruling is present. When the time for dhuhr is present, the ruling, what is the ruling of dhuhr? Al-wujub, yani it's wajib. The, ru- the ruling for dhuhr is present. And when the time for dhuhr is absent, the ruling of dhuhr is absent. So it's no longer wajib. Dhuhr is only wajib for as long as that cause exists. As soon as that cause ceases to exist, it ceases to become Wajib. Of course, that brings us to a different issue of al-qadha and other issues like that, but that's a whole separate ruling. I'm just talking about praying dhuhr yani in its normal time. It's, I've prayed dhuhr at dhuhr time. It's not necessary for me to pray dhuhr at asr time. The only time that I pray dhuhr is while that cause is active. And while it's on, dhuhr is on. Dhuhr is wajib. When it's off, it's off. Dhuhr is not wajib. What about one for permissibility? When is there a sabab for permissibility? When is there a cause of permissibility? What about eating pork? What about eating pork? So is it always permissible to eat pork or only sometimes permissible to eat pork? Sometimes. For example, al-ittirar. In a case of necessity, you have no other food except that and you fear for yourself that you will die. So as long as you have no other food except pork and as long as you fear that you will die, then at that time, while those conditions are present, which we call al-ittirar, like being it being a case of necessity while there is a case of necessity you can eat it and as soon as there is no longer a case of necessity you can no longer eat it okay what about inheritance for example 
death is the cause of inheritance. Can my children inherit from me now? No, not unless I die. Because until I die, they can't inherit from me. Death is a cause of inheritance. And of course, I will be, and once I die, I will be dead. So I will, and it's not, that one doesn't switch off because I don't stop being dead. But once you, you are only, you can only inherit from someone who died. So the ruling of inheritance, inheritance being wajib, for example, only applies once the person has died. There is another category, because these are things that are not from your actions any. Did you have a choice when dhuhr time starts and ends? Can you like move dhuhr? Can we say like, guys, forget dhuhr being at 12.15 today. Now to today dhuhr is going to be at 2 o'clock. And dhuhr is not valid before 2 o'clock. We can't do this. It's not from our choice. But there are asbab causes that are from our choice. For example, the permissibility of eating in Ramadan. We choose to travel in Ramadan, and so it becomes permissible once we have begun traveling, it becomes permissible for us to, to eat in Ramadan. Okay, when we return home, then that's it. Now the next day you return home, you have to fast. Stealing is a cause of a prescribed punishment, the cutting of the hand. Is it allowed for me to cut off someone's hand if they didn't steal? No, it's not allowed. Is it allowed for the judge to command to cut off someone's hand if they didn't steal? No, it's not allowed. So stealing is a sabab of al-qata'. It's a sabab for having the hand cut off. What allowed the hand to be cut off by the judge or the, any, the court? What allowed for the hand to be cut off? It was stealing. When that person stole a certain amount over a certain value in a certain way, it then became obligatory for the court to cut off their hand. So you've understood, inshallah, a cause, a sabab, a cause. Okay. The second one we're going to do, that was number one, a cause. So we've understood a cause. Number two, a shart. Shart is a condition. What is a condition? In the Arabic language, a condition is a sign. A sign for something. Okay, another tongue twister. I much prefer these in Arabic. I hate these in doing these in English. مَا يَلْزَمُ مِنْ عَدَمِهِ الْعَدَمِ وَلَا يَلْزَمُ مِنْ وُجُودِهِ الْوُجُودِ That which if it is absent, the ruling is absent. But if it is present, the ruling is not necessarily present. What did we say for a sabab? That which if it is absent, the ruling is absent. And if it's present, the ruling is present. 
يعني absent equals absent present equals present for a condition absent equals absent and if the condition is absent the ruling is absent the condition is not there the ruling is not there but if the condition is present it doesn't necessarily mean that the ruling is present again giving uh, examples will help the condition of purification for the validity of the prayer or let's not confuse let's give a different example so that we have different different examples for each one the condition of covering the aura in the prayer the condition of covering the aura in the prayer If you don't cover your aura in the prayer while you're able to do so and you don't do it your prayer is not valid but just the fact that you covered the aura doesn't make the prayer valid in itself okay i covered my aura and i prayed one rak'ah for dhuhr is my dhuhr prayer valid no but we just said i covered my aura covering the aura is a shart it's a condition so i covered my aura what's the problem if i prayed one rak'ah you say no because just because you pray just because you did it doesn't mean that your prayer was valid but if you didn't do it your prayer would be invalid that is a shart at this point someone may be paying attention and say hold on a second what about the time for the prayer is the time for the prayer a shart or a sabab it actually depends on what you are speaking about if you're speaking about the obligation of dhuhr then the time for prayer is a sabab because as soon as the time for prayer comes dhuhr is obligatory If you're talking about the point of view of the validity of the prayer, the prayer being correct or incorrect, then in this case the person being sure of the time is a condition. And just because I prayed dhuhr at the right time doesn't mean that my dhuhr prayer is valid. So in the first time when we were talking about time, we were talking about what? We're talking about the time relating to whether dhuhr is wajib or not. This is a sabab meaning when dhuhr is wajib 
When the time for dhuhr comes, instantly dhuhr becomes wajib. When the time for dhuhr comes, instantly dhuhr becomes wajib. And the proof for that, relating to the woman on her menses, that her menses start, let's say for example, at 3 p.m. Okay, did dhuhr become wajib for her yet or not? Yeah, dhuhr became wajib for her. So many of the scholars said that she has to, when she becomes pure, she has to pray that salat of dhuhr. She's not blameworthy, but she has to pray that salat of dhuhr. Because it became wajib for her. And it became wajib for her, but she did not pray it. Because it was not, she did not do anything haram, because she has until the end of the time. But it became wajib for her. It did not, you cannot stop it becoming wajib for her. Like it became wajib because the time came when she was in a state where she was able to pray. So it became wajib for her. Dhuhr became wajib. As for the time as a condition, this is when we talk about the validity of the prayer. We say, min shurut salah, tukhul al-waqt. That the right time, the time having come, is a condition of the prayer. Meaning, was the prayer valid? We don't know if your prayer was valid or not. But if you prayed outside of the time, then definitely your prayer is invalid. And if I prayed dhuhr 10 minutes before dhuhr starts, like some people do in the airport, they say, Wallah, my flight is 12.15, so I'm going to pray dhuhr at 12 o'clock. We say your salah is invalid. Salatun batila, fasida. And your salah is invalid, you have to repeat your prayer. Because you prayed dhuhr before it's time. So you understood the difference here. In one, we are talking about the ruling of dhuhr being wajib. In the other, we're talking about is the prayer valid or not valid. If we're talking about whether the prayer is valid or not valid, then time is a condition for the prayer. If we're talking about whether the prayer is wajib or not wajib, then time is a cause for the prayer. So it depends in what angle you look at it. In all of these examples, or in some of these examples, there are some areas of contention, like sometimes. Like, so don't believe that every example you are given in books of usul al-fiqh is necessarily valid. Some of them have some issues around it. So one of the examples they give is that a year is a year going by for a zakah. Now if they say a year going by for the obligation of zakah, then yes. A year going by for the obligation of zakah is a condition. If they say a year going by for the validity of zakah, then this is not true. Because you can pay zakah before the year goes by. You can pay zakah early. However, 
for the obligation, for zakat to become obligatory, for zakat to become obligatory, a year must go by, an Islamic year. Otherwise, it's not obligatory. Someone says, I have 100,000 dirhams in savings. Okay, how long have you had that 100,000 dirhams? Eight months. Okay, there is no, your zakat is not wajib. Does the fact that a year has gone by mean that zakah has to be wajib? Not yet, we don't know because there are other conditions like an nisab, it should have reached a set amount, it should have reached the right amount for the zakah, and so on and so forth. I mean, there are, there are conditions for the zakah. So, this is an example of a condition. I mean, if the year hasn't gone by, there's no obligation. If the year hasn't gone by, there's no obligation. But if the year has gone by, that doesn't mean there's an obligation. We still don't know if there's an obligation. There needs to be more conditions. If all of the conditions are present, then yes. So for example, from the conditions of zakah is that a year must go by. That the wealth must be the kind of wealth upon which zakah is due. That the wealth must have reached the set limit of the zakah and that you must have complete ownership of the wealth these are conditions of the zakah if any one of them is true or in other words we start again if any one of them is false then there is no zakah which is obligatory but if one of them is true we don't know for certain that zakah is obligatory unless all of them are true so for example one says okay i have a hundred thousand dirhams and a year's gone by, and dirhams are wealth that I, you know, I, I pay on, and, and 100,000 is above the nisab. Is my zakah due? The faqih says, ask the question. He says, do you own that 100,000 dirhams? Is it yours? He says, no, it's, an, any, it's not mine. I, like, uh, I, I've, I've got it in the form of a, a check that hasn't been submitted into my account yet. Like, it's a, it's a post-dated check. And it hasn't been submitted into my account yet. We say then this requires more information. So, here we have the issue of a shart. Shart is something. If it is absent, then the ruling is absent. But if it is present, we still have to ask more questions before we can say that the sh for certain that the ruling is present. We still have to ask more questions before we can say for certain that the ruling is present. Okay. Now we come on to number three, which is al-mani'ah. Al-mani'ah. Al-mani'ah is what we would say in English, an impediment. An impediment. Something which blocks something. Something which prevents something. Okay. We do another tongue twister for this one. Ma yalzamu min wujudihi al-adam. I'm gonna have so much fun with this in the multiple, multiple choice exam. Wala yalzamu min adamihi al-wujud. Okay. Its presence necessitates the absence of the ruling. And it must be the case. If it is present, the ruling must be absent. But if it is absent, the ruling does not have to be 
present. If it is present, the ruling must not apply. Yani present equals ruling does not apply. Absent equals question mark. We don't know for sure. Perhaps we can give an example. Breaking your wudu. For example, I just make it clear. For example, breaking wind. Breaking wind, if it is present, necessitates that your prayer is does not take place. It's not valid. But the fact that you didn't break wind, does that mean that you prayed? Not necessarily. You may not have prayed. You may say, okay, I made wudu and I didn't break wind. Does that mean that I am, my prayer is valid? Not necessarily. Someone says, I was praying in the saf and I broke wind. What does that mean? Okay, for sure your prayer is not valid. Now you have to go and make wudu again. Unless you have unless you are from those people that there is a valid exception like for example those people who cannot control themselves they have a medical illness and they are the same as the woman who has irregular bleeding they are in the same ruling and they pray however they pray and they just finish their prayer but most people the person says okay I made wudu and I didn't break my wudu is my prayer valid? so we'll see how well you know your usul you say to him not necessarily Tell me how did you pray? When did you pray? What did you pray? Did you finish all of the conditions? Did you pray all of the rulings? Did you make ruku'ah? Did you make sujood? Did you do the right number of raka'at? Did you so and so on and so forth? So we don't, just because you didn't break wind doesn't mean that you prayed. But if you did break wind, then for definite your prayer is not accepted. Okay, let's give another example in inheritance. Having a different religion to the person you are inheriting from. So you are a Muslim and the person you are inheriting from, let's say for example a parent, is not a Muslim. You are a Muslim and the person you are inheriting from is not a Muslim. This is a mani' an impediment. In other words, if you are not, if you are a Muslim and they are not a Muslim, there is no way you can inherit from them. The Prophet said, لا يرث المسلم الكافر ولا الكافر المسلم. A Muslim does not inherit from a kafir, nor does a kafir inherit from a Muslim okay the fact that I am Muslim and my parents are and my dead parent is Muslim does that necessarily mean that I inherit no there are conditions and situations in which I might not for example if I was the one who killed them then the killer does not inherit from the one who whom he killed 
which is quite obvious and makes a lot of sense because otherwise they would do like you know they do in the West and you know kill somebody in order to get their inheritance in Islam if you kill somebody you cannot inherit from them for example or there may be other impediments for example I am the same religion as the person who died but I'm not their relative who inherits I'm not their son for example I'm not their father I'm not their husband therefore yes I am the same religion but just being the same religion does that mean I inherit no yes I'm the same religion but unless I am the same religion and I am one of the assigned people mentioned in the Quran and I'm not guilty of killing them and 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 only when all of those things are present and or, and or absent then only then will only then will the ruling apply so with the case of an impediment or a mani' then the case is that if it is present definitely the ruling does not apply if it is absent we have to ask more questions so if you like, it is the opposite of a shart. It's the same like a shart, but on the other side. A shart, if it is absent, then definitely the ruling is absent. Al-mani, if it is present, definitely the ruling is absent. If a condition is present, it doesn't mean that the ruling is present. And if an impediment is absent, it doesn't mean that the ruling is necessarily absent. And the examples are easy to understand. Sometimes if you get yourself twisted with the definition, then it's easy to think of the examples. So an example of an impediment in inheritance, for example, is being of a different religion. But just because you're the same religion as the person who died, okay, today somebody dies and I go to his janazah, do I inherit from him? Why not? We are the same religion. Because... Just being the same religion doesn't necessarily mean that you inherit from someone. You have to be of the same religion and you have to fulfill the other conditions and other things have to be absent. And the last two we have already uh, covered. As-sihha wal-fasad. Validity and invalidity. And the best definition of validity, as we said, is that which uh, the effect of the ruling takes place, or that in which, or that for which the effect of the ruling takes place, or the effects of the ruling take place that for which the effects of the ruling take place and al-fasad is that for which or al-butlan al-batil or al-fasid is that for which the effects of the ruling do not take place ma tatarattab alayhi atharuhu al-maqsudatu minhu and for al-fasad, مَا لَا تَتَرَتَّبْ عَلَيْهِ آثَارُهُ الْمَقْصُودَةُ مِنْهُ So as we said, the effects 
of marriage, the effect of a marriage contract, is that the two people are married. These are the effects. This is the, this is the, the outcome. Maybe the effect is better. We can retranslate it and we can say the outcome. So, as-sihha is that for which the outcome comes into effect. And al-fasad is that for which the outcome does not come into effect. Perhaps that is a better definition to give you something a little bit easier. That as-sahih or as-sihha, validity, is that for which the outcomes come into effect. The intended outcome comes into effect. That for which the intended outcome comes into effect. Let's use that one. That for which the intended outcome comes into effect. And al-batil or al-fasid is that for which the intended outcome does not come into effect. That for which the intended outcome does not come into effect. And we give examples of that. Nikah gets done. If it's valid, the intended outcome is that they are married. Did it come into effect or not? Did they actually end up married or not? That tells us whether it is sahih, correct, or whether it is batil or fasid, incorrect or invalid. And those five are the five of the ahkam al-wadaiyya, the rulings that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put in place that generally don't involve our a direct command to our actions. I mean generally, not always, but generally they don't involve. The first five involve us directly. This is haram if you do it. This is wajib. If you don't do it, you put yourself at risk of punishment. The second five relate to things that are not dependent on whether you do them or not. Like the, whether you pray dhuhr or not doesn't change the fact that the time for dhuhr is a cause for dhuhr to become wajib. Then whether you pray dhuhr or you don't pray dhuhr, it doesn't change the reality of the fact that when the time for dhuhr starts, dhuhr becomes wajib. Likewise, whether you personally happen to, for example, do a particular action or not do a particular action, does not define whether something is a condition or not a condition. Something is a condition if Allah made it a condition, whether you do it or whether you don't do it. Something is necessary for validity, whether you do it or whether you don't do it. The fact you do it or you don't do it doesn't affect whether it becomes valid or invalid. Generally, in a general sense, in a general sense. There is some overlap in the last two. Because in the last two, whether you do and you don't do affects the validity. But generally, these are things, the last five, the ahkam al-wadaiyah, are rulings which are not, don't change based on whether you do something or don't do something. And the first five are related to whether what you do or don't do. And if you do it or you don't do it, whether you could get rewarded or whether you can get whether you could get punished. Depends on whether you do it or whether you don't do it. In the second five, there's no difference whether you do it or you don't do it. The ruling is still, I mean, the, the outcome is, the, is still the same. It's still a condition, it's still valid or invalid.
As for in the first five, whether you get rewarded or punished depends on what you do. Not depends on, doesn't depend on what Allah legislated. In other words, it doesn't depend on whether Allah said that dhuhr begins at this time or that time. But it depends on whether you pray dhuhr at the right time in the right way or you don't pray dhuhr at the right time in the right way. That is one easy difference between the first five which relate to taklif, which relate to you being obliged to do things or not obliged and the second five which relate to al-ahkam al-wadaiyah yani those rulings which are put in place by Allah to define what is a condition and what isn't and what is a cause and what isn't hopefully you guys can see how practical this particular piece of knowledge is it really genuinely is very, very, very important. Because for you to be able to recognize, and this is only really an introduction, but for you to be able to recognize that something is valid, or something is invalid, something is a condition for, for the prayer to be accepted, how will you pray if you don't know what the conditions for the prayer are? How will you pray if you don't know the prayer is obligatory for you to do? So these are very fundamental and you can just think over things you know. Like for example, just think of some rulings you know. The zakah. What, are, what is the cause for zakah? What are the conditions for zakah? What are the impediments for zakah? When is zakah valid and when is zakah invalid? Is zakah wajib? Or mandub or mubah? Or haram or makruh? And does that change based on different circumstances? That, all of it is fiqh. But it's the application of usul al-fiqh. Usul al-fiqh gives you the tools. And then you go and apply it to the zakat, to the fasting of Ramadan. Fasting of Ramadan. Is it wajib or mandub or mubah or haram or makruh? What are the causes for the fasting of Ramadan? The start of the month. Why is nobody fasting today? Because the month didn't start. And the start of the month is a cause for the validity of fasting Ramadan. And he, like as soon as the month starts, Ramadan fasting becomes wajib. If the month didn't start, fasting is not wajib. What are the shurut of fasting? What are the conditions? That if they are present, and if they are absent, then your fast is invalid. But if they are present, it doesn't necessarily mean that your fast is valid. For example, withholding from drinking. Okay, I withheld from drinking, inshallah, maybe tomorrow. If Ramadan starts, I withheld from drinking all day. Is my fast valid? That's the question. Did you withhold from eating as well? Did you withhold from all of the other things that make the fast valid? Or you were eating away but you just weren't drinking? Okay. What are the impediments of fasting? For example, the onset of menses. Okay, the fact that the lady did not have her menses, does that mean her fast is valid? No. She might not have had her menses, she might have been eating and drinking all day. 
But if she does start her menses even one minute before Maghrib, then her fast is invalid and is no longer wajib upon her. So you apply it to what you know. And when is fasting? Sahih. When is fasting? Fasid. And so on. When is fasting valid? When is it invalid? And you apply it to these rulings. This is now you're applying usul al-fiqh to the rulings. And when you do that, we call that fiqh. And we call that fiqh. So when you tell everyone, if you drink during the day in Ramadan, your fast is invalid. You have used usul al-fiqh to go to the texts to take out the ruling and then to give the ruling to the people and so hopefully that has become clear okay just very quickly i think we have some questions on the sister's side okay i'm actually a little bit behind in questions Okay, I just take just take take a couple of questions on the sister's side. What are the different ways to do tawbah for major sins? Tawbah, very briefly, is based upon three stroke four simple principles. Number one, regret for what you have done. And if you want to think of these principles as past, present, and future, that may help you. Think of these principles as past, present, and future. As it relates to the past, you have to have regret. As it relates to the present, you have to stop doing the sin. And as it relates to the future, you have to intend never to do it again. The fourth condition is if your sin related to the rights of someone else, you have to give back those rights. So think of it as past, present, and future, plus the rights of the people. In the past, you feel regret. In the present, you stop doing it. In the future, you intend never to do it again. And if it relates to the rights of the people, like you took some money or you did backbiting, then you should repay back what you have done. By giving the money back or by, if you don't know the person, by giving it in sadaqah or by, you know, if you did backbiting by asking the person to forgive you or by at least mentioning them in a good way and making dua for them until you feel you have repaid them and so forth, you know, so on. This is a tawbah. And then a tawbah is always accompanied by al-istighfar and asking Allah to forgive you. Okay. The second question. You mentioned that if an intention is not done for the sake of Allah, it's not rewarded. So what about sisters wearing hijab for their husbands or family members? And I guess the meaning of this is, and I apologize, I'm just paraphrasing here. Yani. Should they remove the hijab? The answer to that is no, they should not. For two reasons. First of all, there is no doubt if they are doing it for their husband and they are not doing it for the sake of Allah, there is no doubt that they are not rewarded. However, there are two 
additional things to concern yourself with. Number one, if they take the hijab off, they are even further away from being able to develop that reward. Yani they're going the wrong way. It's like saying, yani, if you got lost on the road, yani, like should you, you turn around and just go back home? Yani, like you're going back the wrong way. You're going in the wrong direction. And the second thing is, by taking off the hijab, there are other sins that they get involved in, such as showing themselves to a, uh, a non-mahram, for example. So now, every time a non-mahram looks at them, they get a sin for that. That is a sin that they don't get if they keep on the hijab. And finally, we can add that this is a big, big door for the shaitan. If we tell those sisters, take off your hijab until you are sincere, half of the people in this country will take off the hijab. Because the shaitan will whisper to them and say to them, you're not sincere. You're not sincere. This is not for Allah. This is for your husband. You do not want to wear it. You don't want to wear it. Take it off. Take it off. Take it off. And the shaitan is saying this to you. But if you keep it on and work to correct your intention, then number one, you save yourself from further sin. Number two, you are not going back the wrong way. At least you are, you know, you are staying still. You are giving yourself a chance to reach your destination. And number three, you close the door to the shaitan. Because the shaitan will whisper to somebody, you are not sincere, you are not sincere. And which of us have a guarantee that they are sincere? Wallahi, if we had a guarantee we were sincere, none of us would doubt about going to Jannah. If we had a guarantee that we were sincere, I would say, I pray and I fast and I help and I do this and I do all of these things for the sake of Allah. What is the thing that makes me worried that I will not be from the people of Jannah, that I'm not being sincere? So nobody has a guarantee of sincerity. If we had a guarantee of sincerity, none of us would doubt Al-Jannah. But the reality is we doubt whether we are being sincere. We doubt whether we are doing all of the things we should be. As Allah told us, those people who give what they give, Their hearts are fluttering, they are so scared because they think that their good deeds might not be accepted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we don't tell them to remove the hijab. We tell them keep on your hijab and learn to purify your intention. Like the person, similar question, and maybe this would help you to understand. Someone says, I became Muslim for my husband. What do you tell them to do? Leave Islam immediately. Go into the church and convert to Christianity. No, you tell them, correct your intention, learn Islam, purify your intention and become Muslim for the sake of Allah. You don't tell them to go to the church and become a Christian. So likewise, you don't tell the sister to take off a hijab because her intention is not sincere. Okay. I think this one came first. The ruling of zakah on wealth that is obtained by means of haram. I don't recall the answer to this off the top of my head at the moment, and I would have to look into it, inshallah. 
maybe that person could send me an email and I can, I can research it. I don't recall from the top of my head. What is the difference between fiqh and sharia? There is a difference linguistically and technically. Linguistically, fiqh means understanding. And sharia.